Tell us a little bit about what you saw and, and, and being able to relay that message to Cora when you watched Kimbrell pitch and, and kind of help out so he wasn't uh, tipping his pitches. So tipping pitches, we hear about it all the time. People at home understand what tipping pitches is all about. It's amazing. Man. And that's remarkable. Alex, according to Michael Mayer, at Mike Mayer, 22, the executive editor of Metsmerized, a Mets blog, quote, the Mets and their families are having a talent show on Friday. Katia Lindor is the heavy favorite as a concert violinist. Pete Alonzo, meanwhile, is working on a comedy routine. I I struggle to think of three sentences that could provide me more new information that I should have already known about. <laughs> the absolute whiplash of going through that. <laughs> Seriously. Okay, talent show, fun, fun event. You know, like a thing of team building exercise. I'm sure Max Scherzer was heavily involved in planning it. He seems like the, the events guy, the <laughs> events coordinator for the New York Nets. Katia Lindor, whom I, I religiously follow on Instagram because she posts great great content about the New York Mets and her and Francisco Lindor's lives. And the occasional tipping pitches tweet. And the occasional tipping pitches tweet without even realizing it. Yeah, just resharing it from one of those. I love when, what is like the economy of the Instagram tweet aggregators? Mm -hmm. Should we get in on this? We just, ag we changed our account name and we aggregate our own tweets. <laughs> like I mean, we go way more <laughs> viral on Instagram than Twitter. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's what you got to do, right? Just screenshot your shit and put it everywhere. Yeah, but knock off the account name though, because that's what all of those accounts have to do. Right, can't have anonymize it. You can't know knowing who came up with the idea. That's, I mean, that's the internet, right? It's taking other people's content and passing it off as your own. The Zuck algorithm is much better than the Elon algorithm these days. I have to say, we could go viral much easier on Instagram than Twitter. We yeah. are being shadow banned. <laughs> <laughs> the views are down. Trying to wrap my head around a Pete Alonso comedy routine. Though, he already did one for his charity event last year. Do you recall this? Uh, no, I thought you were talking about his home run derby performance the other year, because that was funny to me. We can't we can't continue without you hearing this. I'm not going to tell a bunch of butthole and dick jokes. I'm going to leave that. To, <laughs> I'm going to leave that to professionals. But I do I do have a story. So our manager. He's probably, I think he was older than Buck. <laughs> Almost impossible. He's older than Buck. He's in his whitey tidies that were sagging down to here with two Miller Lite tall boys. <laughs> he comes in the, in the office like this, or in the clubhouse like this. God damn it! That was the worst offensive production I've ever seen. We didn't execute. This was absolutely horrible. I can't believe this. You sucked, you sucked, you sucked, and you were fucking horrible. And all of us are scared shitless. We're just a bunch of 19-year-old kids just looking around at each other like, oh my god, what's about, what's he gonna say? And these are the next words that came out of his mouth. Are any of you motherfuckers in here a virgin? We're a bunch of 19-year-old kids. We're like really like tiny little mouse. We're like, uh, like, seriously, raise your fucking hand if you're a virgin. 
No one raises their hand. <laughs> He's like, good. Now you motherfuckers know what the fuck I'm going to be talking about. Now let me ask you another question. Do you think when you fuck? We're like, holy fucking shit. This guy's off his rocker. This guy's off his fucking rocker. No one said anything. He's like, good. Now when you step in that fucking box, you don't fucking think. If you don't think when you fuck, you don't think when you hit. You grab the fucking bat and you just fucking hit. Alex, that was Pete Alonso's first attempt. <laughs> I appreciated his disclaimer up front because when I heard Pete Alonso comedy routine, I was like, oh God, it's going to be a bunch of butthole and dick jokes, isn't it? Because <laughs> that's what my mind goes to when I think stand-up comedy, it's butthole jokes. I mean, that's one of the jokes in the Oscar Best Picture frontrunner, Everything Everywhere All at Once. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. It's like the peak of comedy these days. I hope he's refined his craft a little bit. I don't know if I would call what he's done to this point. Now, clearly, I, I can't speak to the talent show that at time of recording is two days away and at, at time of publishing will have been three days ago. I don't know if what I would call what we just played a snippet of stand-up comedy? No. That was, There's no jokes. That was, that was storytelling. It was a funny story. Was it? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he has an almost unique ability to not be funny. Uh-huh. Or like not not be funny in the the way that a stand-up comedian needs to be funny. He's funny like between two ferns funny. Like so <laughs> unfunny that it's really funny. You know right. like when he did his Area 51 thing with Kenny Mayne, which we talked about on the show a few years ago when it happened. That was not, he wasn't trying to be funny and therefore he was much funnier. Yeah, it's not like there's structure to his jokes. Like, it's not like he's setting up tension and then throwing a twist in there. He's just kind of hoping you're going to laugh at. I, I, I appreciate that he was like, I'm not going to tell a bunch of dick jokes. Then he tells a story about his hitting coach uh, talking about fucking. And I'm like, I. <laughs> This I mean, is like his charity event. <laughs> right. I don't know. He's getting some pity laughs in there, though. That's for sure. Yeah. Some real, like, sign a team friendly extension, Pete, laughs. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He could afford to go blue a little less, I think, honestly. I, I agree. You know, if he really wants his burgeoning stand up career to blossom, what he needs to do is he needs to get on Instagram reels and he needs to start doing some crowd work. <laughs> That's like 30% <laughs> of the videos that I see on my Instagram reels is just like, 28-year-old white stand-ups mm -hmm. just having a conversation with people in the crowd. Not even a funny conversation, just a conversation like, where are you from? Yep. Tuscaloosa. Cool. Moves on <laughs> to the next person. <laughs> it's like, all right. It's like, Tuscaloosa, that's in Alabama. Yeah, you're right. I mean, the other 70% is guys saying, like, you can't say the things that I'm about to say anymore. <laughs> and I know that Pete has one or two of those ideas in his head. <laughs> He could just combine them all into one big thing. Well, no, not the other 70%. Maybe like maybe like 30% more. And then the final 40%, at least on my on my Instagram reels, is just people talking about bulking. 
and getting natural physiques. <laughs> All right, that one's on you, using bro. steroids. It is on me. I told you about this last episode. I know. The internet is really figuring me out. You know, it's giving me the bulking content. It's giving me crowd work. It gave me a Skinamarink ad on my fitness pal. <laughs> Are you familiar with Skinamarink? Honestly, no. I saw a, a Joe Biden deepfake video. <laughs> yes. Yeah, where he's Zach, Zach Silberberg. Right, exactly. And that was my entry point. Right. It's kind of all you need to know. Skinamarink is like this experimental horror film where it's just like an hour and 25 minutes of just darkness and just children being trapped in a house with no doors or windows and hearing noises and being scared. It's like an immersive horror experience. Started on YouTube, became a feature film that somehow made it into like a bunch of movie theaters nationwide. And it's just the children for an hour and 20 minutes going, did you hear that voice? (laughs) (laughs) What's that over there? (laughs) Enough with experimental movies. I don't need experimental movies. Really? Just coming out strong in favor of the boring flick. (laughs) (laughs) I like it. Oh, were were you a fan? I didn't mean to offend if you were like a big Skinamarink head. I didn't even see it. There are there is a Skinamarink hive for sure, though. Mm-hmm. Not quite as powerful and robust as the Babylon hive, of which <laughs> I am a key member. <laughs> um, Pete Alonzo, Skinamarink bulking joke at the Mets talent show. This is like word cloud association yeah. in my head. Chat GPT could never. <laughs> I'm patiently awaiting more reporting on this front. You know, I joked that we should get credentialed and we should fly down there and cover this, treat it like a treat it like the World Series, more or less, because that's mm-hmm. kind of this is kind of right in our wheelhouse. Yeah. What baseball player talent, what baseball players think is their second talent besides playing baseball? Because mm-hmm. it takes you know, a certain it, it, it takes a certain broken part of your brain <laughs> to think that you could do stand up comedy when you <laughs> spent your whole life becoming a major league baseball player. <laughs> No, that perfectly tracks. I understand that one 100%. I'm sure Pete is not the only one who's like, yeah, I could do that. I could get up there. Also, I have to assume Mark Canna is going to be involved in in some way, perhaps maybe a little like cooking show or maybe like a blind taste test sort of thing. Did you see he's, he's writing a book about food? I did, yeah. That's pretty cool. Good for him. Yeah. Getting into the publishing industry. It's in a good <laughs> spot these days. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, but okay. One, can Canna actually cook? I mean, I know he can eat. <laughs> I know he identifies good food, but can he cook it? Number one. Number two, is there a time limit on a talent show? Like, I feel like five minutes is probably the max that you can get. Right. And he's like, I'm going to do this, uh, this oven baked slow roasted pork <laughs> for six hours. Circle back. You guys do all your routines and then we'll come back and taste mine at the end. <laughs> it's dark, dark horse candidate for who I think could win this. Eduardo Escobar. No idea what he's going to do. He just seems mm-hmm. like he has a lot of personality and charisma. Yeah. And that's what it takes to win a talent show. Did that's you ever true. participate in a talent show? You had to have. I did a couple You're a young, young musician. Yes. You got a young Paul McCartney on our hands. What mm-hmm. did you do at the talent show? Uh, God, I'm trying to think. Wow, I've actually been at a few. <laughs> the, the, the more I think about it, the an illustrious <laughs> talent show career. <laughs> the, the more I think I've participated in like four or five talent shows between my elementary and high school career. Wow. And like really journeyman. Yeah. Well, it's, it also, <laughs> you wouldn't give up on the dream. You're in the indie <laughs> leagues for talent shows. <laughs> right. Exactly. I was like, I do it for the love of the game. 
you know? Were you doing like Fallout Boy songs or were you like playing the piano? Like what was going on? There yeah, so I so I did a Wilco song in elementary school. So um, sick. So sick. Middle Dudes school rock. Middle school was was kind of a, <laughs> a <laughs> wild choice. There was a Depeche Mode piano song. <laughs> there was a Boys Like Girls song. I the and, price is and going a Green up Bay for, song. The price is going up for what I would pay your mom for this video. Although yeah. she will definitely give it to me for free. Absolutely. If anyone exists. Uh, and then because I had to bring it home in high school, I did a Bright Eye song. Because, duh. You know. Young Connor Oberst I can, on hands. I can only be me. <laughs> I did the talent show twice. Once was with our, our like a full class in elementary school. And we did like a like a little dance singing routine. I don't really know how to describe it. And the second time was I was in fifth grade. And I played the national anthem on the electric guitar. Nice little Jimi Hendrix over here. A little bit, yeah. It definitely wasn't good. Uh-huh. Also, I kind of, I kind of assumed that because I was playing the national anthem, they would put me first. But I was like fifth to last, so it's kind of a weird vibe, you know? Like everybody had already gone. It's like here comes the kid playing the national anthem. <laughs> <laughs> now, did anyone stand for it? I don't remember. I have like extreme stage fright and anxiety. Mm-hmm. And so I don't have any real recollection. Like I remember doing it in that I remember practicing and I remember talking about doing it afterwards, but everything right. day of is kind of blacked nothing. out. I got nothing. Yeah. <laughs> real, real patriotic. You were like, you're like, you know what song really speaks to me? Yeah. Francis Scott Key's classic <laughs> banger. But I remember thinking about it in the style of Jim- Jimi Hendrix. Mm-hmm. Like, I think even then I was like, I'm not going to really do this like Jimi Hendrix. But, you know, I remember doing it not because I was a big F. Scott Key fan. <laughs> but more because I was like, dude, Jimi Hendrix. Yeah. You know who's sick? Jimi I mean, Hendrix. I mean, you had like the long locks of hair back then too. Like, I did, yeah. Like you had the rocker look going. I did. I had like a lightning bolt guitar strap. Oh. One of those, one of those bad boys. Oh, hell yeah. Pretty sure I wore a Beatles t-shirt. And Brand. bands. And bands. That's like that's like a streetwear look now. You know? Like I was way ahead of the curve. Our, <laughs> our culture is being co-opted by Gen Z. <laughs> this oh, is inc- incredible that we went 20 minutes on, on this talent show, honestly. Um, it is incredible. I hope that the Mets talent show goes much longer than 20 minutes. I'd like to hear stories about this for weeks. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a fun episode coming up. We finally have our conversation. With Evan Drellick about Winning Fixes Everything, uh, his book on the rise and fall of the Houston Astros front office. And we are also going to do, um, we're also going to share the what is being dubbed the Tipping Pitches Fan Union Survey, a GM survey style questionnaire that was handed out to members of the Tipping Pitches Slack. So this will... Um, this will kick off our, our month of previewing the baseball season by looking back a little bit at last year and looking at some of the results for questions heading into 2023 as well. But before we do all of that, I am Bobby Wagner. I am Alex Baisley. And you are listening to Tipping Pitches. Alex, no new patrons to shout out this week. Not yet, at least. We are recording this five days in advance. So 
there's five days of nether time that will happen between this recording and when people actually hear it where somebody might sign up so thank you to that somebody or or not thank you or you've really all let us down and hurt us this week (laughs) right if you've already signed up for the patreon go do it again sign up as many (laughs) times as you can just just keep signing accounts you know like we're trying to bernie made off this thing (laughs) right stuff the stuff the box a little bit i saw that you watched the bernie made i saw on your letterboxd account that you watched the bernie madoff Mm. netflix four-part netflix documentary yeah i'm i'm three parts of the way through that and the the will ponds have only been name dropped once mm-hmm. and i've fallen asleep twice so that's a bad <laughs> ratio <laughs> it was a bit of a tough hang if it's i'm being quite so honest bad it's so bad <laughs> it's like we can't get this sidetracked but yeah. they, they literally just like recreate the entire thing as if it's like a like a 2002 Discovery Channel aliens show reenactment. They just have these weird dramatic. Anyway, I mean, this is my problem. This is my we're gonna do a tangent, right? This is my problem with documentaries today, right? Is they're like we we want to tell a story, but we don't have any footage to tell it. What if we just do like kind of like half shadowy (laughs) figures walking around and like secretly shaking hands while someone talks about their mundane experience in the background? Everybody thinks that they're an auteur nowadays. You know, like if you're a documentarian, you also have to be a filmmaker, <laughs> like in big shiny letters. I'm like, mm-hmm. no, just make a documentary. <laughs> you know, yeah. people like documentaries, <laughs> normal documentaries. It felt like they needed, they wanted to make a, um, like the Elizabeth Holmes TV style show, the docudrama that they did last year, or the one with um, Uber, or the one I don't remember the names of any of these. The one with We Work. We work, right? But they just didn't get the budget for it, and so they just made. They did like seven interviews, and then they just shot these weird B-roll. Okay, let's move on. Before we talk about the fan union survey, we got some news this past week. Interesting news for the purposes of the Tipping Pitches podcast. Um, you know, the minor league labor negotiations are happening more fervently than we thought they were just because we hadn't seen much reporting around this. But I do think that those two sides have been meeting, have been negotiating. Um, we got some reporting from Evan Drellick about how it's going so far. Uh, we also saw from Jason Garcia, who uh, who's an investigative reporter who publishes a Substack titled seeking rents um, where he writes about corporate influence and, and big business in the state of Florida. Um, his newsletter last week, detailed um and i think exposed i really didn't see this reported anywhere else besides um jason's newsletter exposed that major league baseball is lobbying currently to cut minor league players off from florida's minimum wage laws so to exempt them in the state of florida the same way that they have been exempted federally from from minimum wage laws um through the save america's pastime act uh mlb's lobbyists are going directly to the governor of Florida, one Ron DeSantis. No other point of interest for that man. Nothing else going on in that man's world. There's nothing else to talk about with Ron DeSantis. One of MLB's owners, the Ricketts, gave $1 million after filing a bill to exempt minor leaguers from the state minimum wage laws. And I think it was kind of a head-scratcher at first because you might think, well... Minor league baseball players have a union now. They're negotiating over certain rights. They're 
likely not going to be making minimum wage now that they have the MLBPA on their side and they're actually negotiating over what their value is. And I thought that too. So I was surprised and I was reading along with it. Why would MLB be directing millions of dollars, millions of lobbying dollars towards Ron DeSantis to try to exempt specifically from Florida? Well, number one is they just had to settle this $185 million lawsuit in Florida and Arizona over not properly compensating based on minimum wage laws, uh, minor league players for their time at spring training in the past or extended spring training. That lawsuit was alleging that these players were there and they were working and they were not being paid at all for that time. Um, That was last year. And the second part of this is that if you have legislate, well, the second part of this really is that they're going to be giving this money to these politicians either way. (laughs) So they're just directly asking for something now. They're Mm -hmm. like, yeah, $1 million for Ron DeSantis? Sure, that's nothing. That's a that's a write-off. The Ricketts already had that one in the hopper. Like, the check was already written, and they were like, oh. What's... I can ask for something for this <laughs> Right, money. let's just add a little note to it. <laughs> they lobby both sides of both political parties in all states so that when they want something that one side can provide, they can attach a request to it. It just so happened that this was the request. Now, why is this the request now? I don't know this for certain, but I would guess because... As they are negotiating in the CBA, they are trying to be as aggressive as they can without endangering, say, a minor league baseball season because of a strike or endangering their relationship with the Major League Baseball Players Association as a whole after just getting a CBA last year or really embarrassing themselves in front of fans as stuff comes out about how these negotiations are going. So they're trying to do stuff kind of behind closed doors that will clear up some political capital for them to ask for these things in a collective bargaining agreement. You can't put anything in a CBA that violates state or federal labor law. And so MLB could not say, we don't want to pay minor leaguers in the offseason if minor leaguers are included in minimum wage law. Minimum wage law in various states forces employers to pay people throughout the entire time if they are full-time employees. And this whole seasonal worker aspect of how MLB has chosen to pay minor leaguers in the past is not is not legal in a lot of states. You know, it's they lobbied for it to become legal federally so that they could do it in most cases, but in places like California, like that that was already illegal and there were already lawsuits going into effect over how they were being paid and whether it was legal or not. And it's clearly worth millions of lobbying dollars to them to have this part of the law on their side, even if they are going to be paying minor leaguers more than basic minimum wage in Florida and Arizona and wherever else they have minor league teams or spring training facilities. They clearly feel that it's worth it so that they can continue to devalue the minor leaguers labors labor as a whole and not pay them in the off season. Right, exactly. Well, and it's something that they can then actually come to the table with as a bargaining chip, right? If they actually codify this. Because as you said, I mean, right now, obviously, Congress uh, passed the Save America's Pastime Act, which exempts minor leaguers, but, uh, but states don't follow those amendments to federal wage law. So they're basically saying, we just want to make it clear that minor leaguers are not being paid minimum wage. 
right? They're basically saying we want to we want to extend this exemption to supersede the the state law at the moment, basically. And and as you mentioned, I do think a key part of this is insulating themselves from future lawsuits because Lord knows they are not keeping overtime records for their for their players, right? Like or time cards or anything like this. No, um, no, no, no. And if they're not doing that, then what they have to do is pay them the state minimum wage for salaried workers too, which in, which I don't really know what it is in Florida, but like for example, in, you know, California, New York, it's like in the mid 50,000s, which is which would be a lot more money than they're currently paying all mm-hmm. of their minor leaguers, you know? So they would have to reach that threshold in order to say that they are not hourly workers eligible for overtime. So if they're carved out from that exemption, then it's a lot easier for them to pay them less. And the other thing is like, even if you're not talking about strict numbers, like getting to a salary minimum to call this person a salaried worker, what you're talking about is a conceptual argument back and forth between the two sides. Is this person working for you for nine months or is this person working for you for 12 months? If they're working for you for 12 months, you have a lot more ammo on your side to say they should be making more because they are working for longer. And that's how we reward work in this country, right? Like, Mm -hmm. are you... (laughs) I mean, that's how we conceptualize the idea of work in this country. Like, you get paid for the time that you're there, I guess. And if they're only working for them for nine months, well, then MLB teams are going to say, well, they should make 75% less. They're only working for us for three quarters of the year. They're making whatever you think that that they should be making yearly, salary-wise, they should just make 75% of that. Right, exactly. And they shrewdly went to a lobbying firm that just so happens to be run by a former DeSantis lobbyist and uh, also employs DeSantis's former campaign manager, right? So everything's on the up and up here. I just want to be very clear about that. Um, I'm wondering, like, why does it, why is it just the Ricketts? Did they just draw the short end of the stick? Like, it's their right. turn to do the lobbying? Like, every right. owner has to do a million every couple of years? <laughs> or do the Cubs just care more about this? Right. Or, or even better, did they get a Venmo from every other East Coast team that has their spring training facility in Florida? And they just pay, they paid it, and then Venmo requested Steve, Steve Cohen and John Middleton for their portion of it. They do a split. Right. I mean, it's... It's like the MLB commissioner's pack, right? When the owners don't want to know like who's going into it, they're like, well, we'll just put it. They all looked at the the rickets and they were like, there's no secret with you guys. There's <laughs> like, can can you make the donation for me, please? Oh boy. Okay. So we'll see. We'll see about that. Um, shall we move on to the tipping pitches fan union survey? Let's do it. So as I said, this is a GM survey style. You know, the GM surveys every year where they ask a bunch of fun questions and they anonymize the responses. And we all get to make content out of it for a week when 29 out of 30 GMs say that they would build their team around Shohei Otani. Or, you know, 23 out of 30 teams say that they wish that they could be the Cleveland Guardians or some shit like that. There's mm-hmm. always like, it's always like a, a fun way of hearing what people don't actually think. <laughs> you know, like it's a fun way of giving people the cover to, to lie. <laughs> On the GM survey, that is not the case for the Tipping Pitches fan survey. It's all people being 100% honest and answering very important questions in the baseball world. I want to give a large, large shout out to Tipping Pitches patron Owen Maynard, who organized the survey, wrote up the questionnaire, all from way across the Atlantic. 
in the UK doing this in his spare time. Thank you to Owen. You've given us quite a bit of content to share with the world. And and really, it's the first formal action by the fans' union. Obviously, the next step is is drafting a CBA, but we need to get everyone on the same page first, at the very least. Interesting of you to say that this is the first formal action by the fan union when um, I have it on good authority that you signed on to the Ron DeSantis $1 million lobbying pledge. You, as the, the head of the... <laughs> Major League Baseball Fans Union, Alex Baisley. <laughs> You've been elected president, Jimmy Hoffa style. Once again, they've been worryingly absent. You know, they came in, made a lot of bold promises, that MLB Fans Union, and then disappeared. Like, my, my email is just being mined for, uh, <laughs> for marketing dollars right now. Have you noticed an uptick in spam emails since you signed up for the MLB Fans Union? I mostly get spam emails anyway, so <laughs> no, I haven't. Knowing how little you check your notifications on like text messages, yeah, I don't even want to see your email. <laughs> no, you don't. <laughs> Any of them. Uh, okay, let's go through these responses. The first question, which player in Major League Baseball has the best vibes? This is not who I would have thought would have won this overwhelmingly. 37%, a plurality, no majority, because this was an open-ended response form for this question. 37% said Julio Rodriguez. And only 16% said Shohei Otani. Other guys who got votes? Jose Trevino? Jazz Chisholm? Joey Votto? Matt Veerling? Smoking Stogies? In the clubhouse? Mookie? Nick Castellanos? Eugenio Suarez? Starling Marte? And Albert Pujols? Julio Rodriguez, the leading vote-getter, 37% of the votes. I, f- I mean, he does have good vibes, but I guess I mean, we're sampling in Seattle. Was there something, was there another player who, who came to mind? Because I know that he's a, a fan favorite in the Slack for many reasons. Why not John Fisher? That's actually true. Congrats to Julio Rodriguez, the first annual Tipping Pitches Best Vibes winner. Uh, best Vibes by team. I think we just we just got flooded by Mariners fans, bro. The Mariners yeah. won this one too. Mm-hmm. 52.2% Mariners, 43.5% Phillies, and 4.3% Mets. No other teams getting any votes. You think this is going to remain true in 2023? Do you think the Mariners vibes are going to continue? I think it's a good question, right? Because once a team like the Mariners kind of breaks out and captures the hearts and imagination of fans in in a given year there's a bit of attrition right in the in the in the coming year backlash yeah that said i think that they still have room to grow because they can be a better baseball team and i think that helps with uh with general vibes like the phillies are the one i'm i'm actually a little more concerned about because they would have been my pick for for best vibes in 2022 but but how does that change once you've been to the world series the phillies vibes thing really was like a 3 week thing like <laughs> everybody was like i mean i understand that the vibes were unbelievable but the vibes of that team in august were dog shit really bad really bad vibes it was like Alec Bohm just threw another one eight feet over to the second baseman <laughs> trying to turn a double play. <laughs> like, let's all fight each other. 
Let's all it, slam it, our head against the wall. It was a vibes roller coaster. That is <laughs> Definitely, for sure. There's yeah. no way that they're going to have the best vibes of 2023. No, it just no. would not be very Philadelphia to just be consistently good vibes. No, only small sample size. It's unsustainable, man. Okay, next question. Worst vibes for a player. Here are all the people who are receiving votes. I will re- reveal the winner last. Aroldis Chapman, Mike Clevenger, Robbie Ray, Fernando Tatis Jr., Carlos Correa, Alex Bregman, Brooks Raley, Garrett Cole, Tommy Pham, Trevor Bauer, and the worst overall vibes for a player in 2022 was Josh Donaldson in a <laughs> landslide. Yeah. 42% of responses chose Josh Donaldson. Now, that that has to just be a Yankees fan thing, right? Like, we just have a lot of Yankees fans in the Slack. I don't know. His vibes are pretty fucking awful, man. I mean, yeah. hey, look, I, I mean, I got to say, if if people are voting for you having worse vibes than one of the most universally reviled players in the sport right now, I I don't know. Maybe Maybe you're due for a little introspection. Yeah, you know? maybe. I feel like uh, uh, most people who voted on this didn't take it as like worst person, you know, right. like worst vibes of players who are, uh, otherwise have not done anything unbelievably morally, morally terrible. Right. I know Josh Donaldson had his own whole thing where he called Tim Anderson Jackie Robinson. I can't believe yeah, that happened. I know. I can't no. believe that happened. Um, he does have just heinous barstool vibes to him. Yeah, well, do you remember when he like went on that rant and he was like, why can't I say Saturdays are for the boys? How is no. that How is that sexist? <laughs> He's like, every other like, day is for the ladies. <laughs> that was literally like his point. He was um, like, you guys can have Sundays. It's fine. <laughs> Saturdays are for us. Uh, worst vibes for teams. A's, Angels, Braves, Rockies, Cardinals, Padres, Astros, Reds, Yankees, Nationals and Rays all receiving votes, but taking the cake was the 2022 Chicago White Sox. I think that's right. Really? I think that's right. They had really bad, bad vibes. Tony La Russa all year. Totally. Starting starting off the year by taking down the Loretta's Lounge sign and replacing it with La Russa's Lounge is not a good way to start it. Having Jerry Reinsdorf within 100,000 miles of your fr- franchise, let alone owning it and signing the checks, is, a, is another terrible way to get the vibes cranking. And then the good things about the team really went out the door quickly. A lot of injuries <laughs> to the fun players. You know, some regression from some of the pitchers. Really, only like a handful of bright spots that I can think about. Dylan Cease, I guess, who... You know, your mileage may vary on how much of a bright spot he actually is. He's a pretty great pitcher. Don't want to know anything else about him. Nope. <laughs> the other teams on this list here, I mean, there are 12 responses here, so it's almost half the league. Most of these got just a handful of votes. Um, you know, the A's are on here, bringing up the rear. I really don't think their vibes were that bad. They were just non-existent. <laughs> like, they didn't really have much of a pulse from, like, July on. Right. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's just, it was just kind of no emotion there. You know, it was like, all right. Well, who do you think should have had the worst vibes? Who would you have voted for? Well, I mean, maybe on reflection, the the White Sox are, uh, are a good answer. I think the, the Nats vibes were, were pretty rough this year, honestly. Yeah. Um, with the whole, they tied for second. Yeah. They did tie for second. They had the whole Soto thing, the, the, the threat of ownership change. Um, 
but perhaps perhaps has less of a vibes thing and more of just like kind of a like disappointing franchise thing like like the the Padres made it on here and when I saw that I was kind of like wow that's a little little harsh and then I reflected a little bit and I'm like no the the actual vibes in that clubhouse were were tough at some points during the season <laughs> so weird really weird Tatis missing the whole year and like getting into a fight with Machado at the end of the mm-hmm. previous year yeah the, some weird vibes seems like they've ironed everything out yeah in San Diego but we we will see Bob Melvin's coming in steady hand you know it's Walter White looking ass <laughs> just won't let this go just looks so much like Walter White Brian Cranston <laughs> you know pre-shaving his head mm-hmm. pre-Heisenberg date anybody no okay let's move on <laughs> best tweet of the year best baseball tweet of the year third place Ben Verlander woke up thinking about how Babe Ruth set his poor wife Helen on fire yet the moral gatekeepers are keeping Barry Bonds the greatest hitter of all time out of the Hall of Fame. That that that's the bronze medal, Alex. Indistinguishable from a drill suite. I just want to say it. <laughs> Second place at B Nightingale, our good friend Bob. Heard of him. It is now midnight and no one is moving as the two sides moving ever so closer. My personal favorite tweet mm-hmm. of all time? Of all <laughs> time. And first place. John Heyman, Arson Judge appears headed to Giants. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the the tweet that spawned a thousand jokes. I think that that was recency bias. There's no way that that's a better tweet than Ben Verlander or Bob. <laughs> There's no way. Also receiving I, votes were Tungsten Armo Doyle, which I think is like a two or three year old tweet at this point. Yeah. Um, and the pitching ninja tweet of the Rysel Iglesias throwing a box of sunflower seeds with the tail attached mm-hmm. to it as well as sean murphy getting hit by a pitch and sticking his ass out yeah i i have to i mean to give the Heyman tweet some credit right i understand you don't have to hand it to john Heyman. um I, I think part of the reason why it holds so much gravity is like he was actually trying to like convey information <laughs> you know so was nightingale I mean, yeah, but he, he was trying to convey that no one was moving as the two <laughs> sides were moving ever so closer. Right. But but here's the thing is he wasn't wrong, right? It was close to midnight. Uh, <laughs> no one was really moving, but they were moving closer. <laughs> Heyman got like a third of the words wrong in his tweet. <laughs> and it has actual implications. On the game of baseball. (laughs) So true. I think that maybe why I'm not responding as much to Arson Judge as other people clearly did is that I missed it the first time around. Yeah. I didn't see this tweet. And it didn't make me think that Aaron Judge was going to be on the Giants. Right. So you didn't get to experience it so much, by the way, actually. Now, I, I know I'm sort of undercutting it, but still at the same time, even if he was right, he still hedged. He says, appears headed to Giants. Mm hmm. Giving himself a little wiggle room. Okay. Best baseball moment of 2023. Receiving votes. The ear game. Presumably that's the Joe Musgrove ear game. I would not call that the best baseball moment of 2023 personally, but that's okay. The Phillies choosing Dancing on My Own as their anthem for the playoffs. Otani near perfect game. Minor leaguers voting to unionize. Miguel Cabrera's 3,000th hit. Mets comeback win versus the Phillies. Kyle Schwarber ejection amazing moment. Julio Rodriguez Derby slash All-Star Game Breakout. 
Jesse Winker throwing baseball seeds onto the field during ejection and then someone door dashing him a pizza. I wasn't aware of this. Aaron Judge, number 62. Cal Raleigh, walk-off homer to send the Mariners to the playoffs. Pujol, 700. And Harper, NLCS home run. Tied for first. This seems right. I would lean Harper just because it happened in the playoffs. But the Pujol 700th home run is probably the thing that will be remembered the longest. Yeah, well, that's that's actually the one that I like remember where I was, right? We were together when it happened and had the game on. And we were like eating, I don't know, probably baked ziti like we usually do. And then he just did it. I think I screamed. Two home runs in the same game, too. He was mm-hmm. like, let me get this out of the way. <laughs> I know. I I I do have to hand it to our uh to our listeners for the sheer diversity of responses we got here. Right? We got like one of the greatest players of this generation hitting a milestone so few people reach. We have another player breaking a record that has stood for more than half a century. And we have someone door dashing Jesse Winker. <laughs> a pizza. And you know what? They all hold an equal amount of space in my heart, frankly. All right. The rest of the survey is pivoting a little bit towards 2023, but there is one more question that was uh, rear view that was looking backwards into 2022. And that is, who were the favorite episodes and guests of 2022? Um, tied, tied atop this are, are our wonderful friends at Batting Around and Grant Brisby, the crowd pleasers of the world. Truly. Both of those episodes, supremely fun. Extremely fun talking to talking to Grant about our baseball not what ifs our baseball butterfly effects, and of course batting around. I mean the only the only time we really get to talk at length about Sean Murphy's butt. So right, that's a win. Um, coming in a close second were the all gift draft, which feels like cheating because there's like eight guests on that, <laughs> as well as uh, Trevor Hildenberger talking about forming the minor league baseball players union. Cool episode. Cool thing. Can't believe that happened. 2022. Minor leagues are unionized. What a time. Okay, let's pivot a little bit forward. 2023. We'll move, we'll move through these quickly. There was a question asking people, what are you most looking forward to in 2023 in Major League Baseball? And Owen has um, helpfully organized these categories, these responses into categories for us. You know, we have the normal stuff like getting to go to games, long games, all-star games, how the Mets will screw up, interleague play, everybody getting to play each other for the first time ever, rule changes, shift ban, more stolen bases, individual player things like Tatis coming back, Kodai Senga coming to the major leagues, Jazz playing center field, but only one player got their own category here, and that is Shohei Otani. And not just that. (laughs) The responses for the Otani category all center around him not being on the Angels anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's Otani to the Dodgers season in the slack, apparently. Bro, Otani's not going to the Dodgers. I know. We can't let that happen. Otani to the A's. No, no, free him. Come on. (laughs) He doesn't deserve that. Um... The prediction question, will a team be sold? 63% of people said no. 33% of respondents said yes, and it will be the Nationals. And only 4% said yes, it will be the A's. Bad bad beat for you, Alex. Yeah. (laughs) Frankly, higher than I thought. I didn't even realize it was on the table. 
I don't think it is. <laughs> I don't think it is. In terms of um, team predictions for the 2023 season, your NL champion this year will either be the Mets or the Padres. 35% of respondents choosing the Mets or Padres tied. Um, and it turns out that the Astros are definitely winning the AL again. Mm-hmm. 46% of people thought the Astros would win the AL. And for the World Series, Mets and Padres tied at 21.7%. Astros at 17.4%. Should we uh, plot this against the fan graph odds at the end of the year and see who's better? Tipping pitch slack or fan graphs? I think we should. We're going to have to revisit all of these, really, and, and see how we fared. I got to say that the, the AL picks get a little chaotic <laughs> further down the list you go. <laughs> Tied for getting the third most votes for 2023 AL champions are the aforementioned Seattle Mariners. Okay, yeah. Sure. Okay. Some progression there, but yeah. yeah. And one Baltimore Orioles. E. I mean, hey, we have yet to see John Angelos' influence, so I don't want to put it past them. He's been very clear that that next year is going to be the year, right? Now, he said that last year, so this is next year. I thought he said that about this year, too. Next year is still the year. Listen, as we're going to talk about with Evan, the Orioles are the spiritual successor to the Astros. So that could mean a lot of things. It could mean that they get bogged down in scandal. It could mean (laughs) that they win the World Series. It could mean that uh, the owner still doesn't invest in the team, but they win the World Series anyway. It could be anything. Yeah. Uh, Okay. We're getting near the end here. Most realistic guests you'd like to see in 2023? Lots of very creative interpretations (laughs) of the word realistic. (laughs) Receiving votes. Foolish baseball. J-Lo. Craig Goldstein. David Roth. Some of these people we've already had. And other other of these people are J-Lo. Are like (laughs) A-list celebrities. (laughs) David Roth. Richard Staff. John Cusack. Mm-hmm. Actually, I mean, we could do it. Outside chance of getting it. Vinny Pasquantino, Mike Duncan, Meg Rowley, Tony Clark, Scott Boris, of course, A Rod, Joe mm-hmm. West, Bernie Sanders, Sean Doolittle, and the number one desired guest for 2023, Spencer Strider. All right. <laughs> Is it realistic that we get Bernie Sanders on the pod? <laughs> More realistic, Bernie Sanders or J-Lo? Probably Bernie, honestly. J-Lo's like filming, filming a rom-com like every six weeks right now. I think so too. However, I think Joe West tops them both. <laughs> I, I genuinely think we could get him on. I mean, it's not about could, it's about should we get him on. <laughs> what ripple in the space-time continuum will we cause if we have Joe West on the podcast? Look, I just want to know about the creative process behind Blue Cowboy. That's all. I just have some questions. Honestly, I think he would probably come on if we told him that it was only going to be about Blue Cowboy. I agree. <laughs> Do people want that? <laughs> I don't know if people really want that. A couple of people responded to that in this survey, but I don't know. Um, Spencer Strider, obviously, is, is, a, is a no-brainer, but I don't know how we get to him. How do we get to him? Anybody listening, please put us in touch with Spencer Strider. <laughs> I, Colin McHugh had him on and their teammates. We could reach out to Colin. Yeah, well, Foolish had him on. So I think what we need to do is have Foolish on and then leverage that connection. Foolish Say, is doing hey, fine. Foolish is doing fine. He 
doesn't need our bump. <laughs> no, we need his. That's the point. <laughs> well, then he needs to invite us on baseball boots. That doesn't work to have him on. No one's going to be like, who are these guys? I'm going to go listen to Foolish Talk. There, Foolish Talks everywhere. Including on his Tesla live stream when he lost control of his YouTube account. <laughs> Brutal stuff. So happy he got it back. Uh, okay. Final two questions. What comes first? And M- the MLB CBA or the 2023 World Series wrapping up? Alex, 83.3% of people think that the 2023 World Series will end before we receive the 2022 Major League Baseball, Major League Baseball Players Association collective bargaining agreement. Do you agree with this? Regrettably, I think I would count myself in that group. Are we sure we're ever going to get it? Isn't There's no like legal requirement that they put it online. <laughs> we just had the last, we've, we've had them all up to this point. I had thought that they, that like the Department of Labor published these sort of things though. I don't, not that I know of. See, we post our CBAs because it's helpful to have it online and for other people in media to be able to look at it and say, this is what people in my field make. But the MLBPA doesn't seem to be in any rush to post their CBA <laughs> so that you and I can talk about it. <laughs> Incredibly rude, if we're being quite honest. We're just trying to admire the legalese, you know? Just send us a little shadow copy. We won't I post think, it anywhere. We just want to read it. Just want to I read think, it. Some uh, light my, beach reading. My question is, are we going to see a, a major league CBA or a minor league CBA first? Like, which one are we actually going to lay eyes on first? I mean, I have to assume if they get a minor league CBA, we're we're not going to see that for the same amount of time. Like, why would it be any easier to actually <laughs> create the document to post the PDF for that one than for the major league one? So we're we're looking at not seeing the minor league CBA until 2028 at this yeah. point, you know? <laughs> at which point they will be negotiating a new one. Will we be doing a podcast when we see the minor league CBA? I mean, if we'll, even if we're not, we'll have to come out of retirement just for that. <laughs> We can't let that slide. We we sell this feed to like some Fiverr account. (laughs) (laughs) We just make like 50 bucks a week on it. (laughs) We're like, wait, we need access back to it for a week to talk about the minor league baseball CBA. Okay. The final, the final question for the tipping pitches fan union. And this one is for the patrons themselves, the tipping pitches slacker of the year being crowned for the greatest contributions to the slack workspace of the Tipping Pitches podcast. Receiving votes, Britt, Francesca, and Becca, all who have contributed to this podcast in wonderful ways. Mm -hmm. But the far and away winner, 70%, is our friend Nick Taylor. Our analytics aficionado, our our chief newsbreaker as well. Mm. I think if if Nick didn't post it, it didn't happen. True. Ailing Brewers fan. Before we move on from this entirely, I do want to. There was a there was a question about uh, bold predictions for 2023, and most of them just kind of run the gamut. Um, and we're not going to run through all of them, but I did want to point out um, two that uh, that caught my eye. And and the first is that the Tigers suddenly get good this year. Hmm. Um. And the second is that the Tigers will have a giveaway night where a fan wins a real Tiger. (laughs) 
And I would give those about an equal chance of happening in 2023. (laughs) (laughs) Gauntlet thrown, Tigers fans. Somebody also predicted that the A's will get good. So I don't know how many people were taking this one seriously. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Different interpretations of the word bold. Yeah. Just like there are different interpretations of the word realistic when it came to the guess that we could get. <laughs> um, okay. Thank you to everybody for participating in that survey. Thank you again to Owen for organizing it. Congratulations to Nick for winning Slacker of the Year. The bar has been set for whoever's going to win Slacker of the Year next year. If you would like to become a member of the Tipping Pitches Fans Union, you can sign up for any level of our Patreon, patreon.com slash tippingpitches. You can participate in stuff like this. More importantly, you can just participate in the Slack day-to-day. It's a really fun place to be. Uh, It's where I learn about most things happening in the baseball world and where I hear people make better jokes than I would have made about those things. The truth is that the Slackers are funnier than we are, so that's a bad beat for us, I guess. Yeah. (laughs) We're all funnier than Pete Alonso, and that's what what brings us together. (laughs) Um, It's time to go to our conversation with Evan Drellick. Before we before we officially throw to Evan, I wanted to say we didn't get a chance to talk too much about our, you know, honest reactions to the book in our conversation with Evan because we were asking him questions about writing it and reporting it and some of the concepts in it and how he thinks they've evolved over time as he's been covering the industry. I wanted to say I was kind of exhausted with sign stealing stuff, and I was pretty exhausted with like the rush to write a book about it. You know, anytime that there is something that happens in culture in the business world that is like a huge story there is a gold rush on being the person to write the book about that thing it just so happens that evan is the person that should have been writing this book the whole time you know like all of the people who wrote their own version of the science ceiling scandal i can't speak to those books necessarily but what i can do is i can say that evan was there while all of this stuff was happening and he was reporting some of the impropriety of this organization before it was obvious that what they were doing was crossing lines while it was still kind of like culturally accepted in the baseball world the way that this team was crossing lines he was raising questions about whether they should have been crossing those lines and how they should have been crossing them and i think that that lends an incredible credence to the book to the reporting in it and also like you will learn new stuff from this book even if you don't even if you think you know everything about the science stealing, like I've read all of his stories about the science stealing. I've listened to all of the podcasts about the science stealing. You will learn stuff about how a front office works specifically that I think is valuable to this perspective that we have on this show. Um, I think confirms a lot of the thoughts that we have about ways that team op- teams operate on this show. The brazenness, the cold calculating nature of it, the self-seriousness, the almost like unbelievably immoral drive to save money at all costs in a sport that is in theory supposed to be like for society's greater good. Um, so I know, I know plenty of you have already bought this book, started reading it, finished reading it or have no intentions on buying it and reading it. And that's okay too. Cause I think the conversation that we had with Evan is digestible, whether or not you've read it, but you know, we don't do like plugs for stuff like this often on the podcast, but we get asked a lot of the time, what are some of your favorite baseball books? And this immediately vaulted itself into being one of my favorite baseball books, not only just of the last few years, but just generally speaking of all of the, I would like, I would put this up there with as enjoyable as of a read as Moneyball for different reasons. It definitely kind of feels like the sequel to Moneyball 
in a way, right? The sort of logical extension of a lot of the seeds that were planted in that book about evaluating players and front office makeup. And again, this is not a book about the sign stealing scandal. It is it is the a, sign stealing these, scandal doesn't come into like the two hundred tenth page. Like, right. Exactly. It's it, it is about the structures that enabled actions like that to take place. It is far more about Lunau's rise um, in the baseball world and sort of the really unique and often toxic and divisive culture that he cultivated in the Astros with the thinking that it it didn't matter what, you know, facts don't care about your feelings, bro, right? The, the wind yeah. column never, never lies. But it really is just such an interesting insight into how far so much of this stuff was pushed, right? How heavily they relied on McKinsey. How they like flirted with eugenics here and there, right? They were like, <laughs> um, there are some really wild revelations in this book that have not been reported elsewhere and really like make you sort of take a step back and I think reevaluate a lot of what we've come to understand about the modern front office in baseball. And honestly, if there's one thing that recommends this book the most, it's the way that Evan gets people to openly talk about or situates the timeline of events to prove that the number one thing that a baseball front office, that that a quote-unquote good, successful, winning baseball front office cares about pursuing is market inefficiencies. However, Market inefficiencies is like the the rosy blanket language for underpaying anyone who you can find to underpay. Sometimes that plays out in the case of underpaying a free agent who other teams don't think is as good as you think they are. Maybe that's like Moneyball 1.0. Sometimes that takes shape in the form of a draft pick who you are high on that other teams are not and so you can pay under their slot value to save money to get another draft pick. Sometimes it takes place in the form of underpaying the people who actually work for your front office. Like the assistant GM was making under six figures, you know? But all in all, for like the tipping pitches minded listener, the way that it nakedly lays out that the notion of inefficiency is really just a way to save the owner money and allow them to profit off of their investment because that's really all they care about in the end I think is I think is very illuminating yeah and it's really illuminating how divisive some of this stuff really is right when we're kind of used to thinking of front offices as a sort of collective hive mind there were a lot of people both inside and outside the Astros organization that really chafed at a lot of what they were doing and did not hold back when talking about it. Obviously, I think some of it was, hey, you're saying the quiet part out loud here and <laughs> what you're doing goes against our unwritten rules. And and I do think some of it was, at least internally, like shit, we're we're playing with people's lives here. And 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 some players and employees say as much, right? Talk about being treated like numbers on a spreadsheet. And at you know at one point they're they're talking about 
employees moving from one front office to another and, and the amount of people that Lunau took with him from the Cardinals. And, and one anonymous employee says, yeah, it's not a free labor market here. We don't really get to sort of choose where we end up. We're, it's kind of at the discretion of our employer. And that was like kind of a throwaway anecdote, but it was also very illuminating to me that there's so much about this sort of underbelly of front offices that we really have very little awareness of. And this does a really good job to shine a light on on a lot of those improprieties. It's the baseball front office story as satirical espionage thriller. <laughs> yes. <laughs> These people are acting, you know, like it's the space race. I'm like, at the end of the day, we're going out and we're throwing a baseball and someone's trying to hit it with a stick. <laughs> yeah, you don't need to... Uh, go to jail for corporate espionage over this, man. Yeah, except people did, which mm-hmm. is why it's so ridiculous. I I kind of loved thinking about it as as that, thinking about it as a satire because of how absurd the events are. Like, like reality is honestly too absurd to be parodied. And that's something that we say a lot on this show. And in the case of the Astros, it's like, they brought in this ragtag group of former investment bankers and people who wanted to get into baseball front offices because they liked playing fantasy baseball when they were in college and astrophysicists and all of these people. And they all sat around and sat around and started, they all sat around and told each other how smart they all were. And it ultimately resulted in most of their careers ending or like a lot (laughs) of their careers ending because of the way that they went about it, you know, like, it's just I, I it's 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 very funny. It's funny. Yeah. I found myself book, laughing. <laughs> I found myself laughing. Okay, let's go to our conversation with Evan Drella. When I wanted you to share my life, I had no doubt in my mind. And it's been you woman right down the Long awaited Evan Drellick to talk about his book winning fixes everything evan the fanfare is through the roof in the tipping pitches community for this book and and for the conversation about it first off how are you doing you've had about a thousand conversations about this book in the last month how do we make this not super boring for you no 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 it's good it's good that people want to talk about the book it 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 might mean i uh don't shower as much as i'd like but uh (laughs) it's good that people want to talk about the book what what is this sort of um reception that that you've been seeing when you've been like talking to people like are there certain sort of um strains of of shock is there like around the baseball community is there kind of a sort of you know this is a very well laid out sort of uh you know uh, archaeological uh almost exploration of the astros like how are what are people coming back to you with yeah i think you know, you know, angry Astros fans aside, which which is well expected. Um, I, I've been pleased that I think people have seen and understood the larger story that I was trying to tell. Like I, I you know, I, I've really only had positive responses about kind of the the overall of the book. You know, the 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 composition and the like broader story and stories that are being told, and so that's satisfying. I I wanted. You know, I stayed very quiet during the time I was working on the book, even while other people were talking and writing about the Astros, how we broke the story, all this stuff. And it was very tough, but I wanted to get to a point where people could have the full picture. And I, and I, 
glad that people are are reading and you know f- several people have been I, I get the notifications on Twitter that said you know it was a page turner and that's like really satisfying you, you know that 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 <laughs> yeah you, that's what you want you want people to to want to read and digest the whole thing when I was reading it I found it to be like very cinematic you know like it moves from scene to scene very smoothly and just it, it felt very satisfying to like see every I know all this stuff you know like for the most part obviously there's stuff in the yeah. book that has never been reported before but a lot of the stuff you've reported already um throughout various articles either when you were with the chronicle or or with the athletic I I guess you know I wanted to start by asking you how much of this book was reported sort of in real time like pre you and Ken breaking the story versus how much did you need to double back with sources cuz I imagine the tenor of those conversations was definitely changed after the the story broke officially no, there was a, there was a ton of new reporting for the book. I mean, there's also old reporting, including stuff that I hadn't, you know, some stuff in inter- interviews that I'd never published. Um, you know, so it's like it's really drawing on ten years of my reporting career. You know, it goes back to when I got to Houston in November of thirteen, and so the book took, I guess, roughly two and a half years to do. The first year was uh, twenty twenty. That year was all reporting, and then I, I set out to write. I hold myself away in Joshua Tree for a month. Wasn't, wow, like the Bono me- of the baseball media world. Yeah, it was. It was in between. It was in technically in something called Morongo Valley, which is in between Palm Springs and, and Joshua Tree. Right, but I yeah. needed to. I'm I'm kind of a tunnel vision type. I needed to get away. You know, still during the pandemic, and um, so yeah, it's a year's worth of reporting. A, a, a lot of the stuff is you know some of the stuff i i knew but hadn't been able to dig into um and some of the stuff is truly just all new i mean it, it uh so it's it, it's a mixture um but i i learned a lot during the reporting process it wasn't like it was you know i, I had a sketch i had a sense of where it could go but you still needed to i still needed to have conversations and figure out exactly where it was going to go what was the the kind of sense um of people's response when you were sort of talking with them about this? Was there a, because there's a lot of really frank um, conversations that are had in this book. There are a lot of people who were there at the time who do not mince words when it comes to that. So was there a sort of a sense of relief almost like, you know, I, there's a story to tell here. Was there, you know, friction because people didn't want you sort of unearthing some of this dirty laundry? Like, how did that kind of kind of go throughout the reporting process? Yeah, probably both of those. I, I think, you know, you, you had this major thing happen, right? That it, it, it falls apart. And yes, the team has maintained success in the field, but the front office fell apart, right? It, 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 there's no, you can argue, was, was there a fall? Yeah, there was a fall. You, you had four people who were associated with the team fired. Two of them were still in Houston. Two of them weren't. But um, you know, this is a major disrupting event. And I, I think you add that up with the sense among a lot of people that the narrative around the Astros previously was not full or fully accurate. And, and I think the book shows that, that really what people understood about what was going on was just a slice. And I, so I think there were, people were just not everybody, but, but, you know, many were kind of ready to explain here, you know, here's what really happened here. And, um, you know, baseball in general, I guess and it's not just baseball specific, although I think baseball is pretty, uh, it, it fosters this kind of environment where people just don't want to talk and put themselves out there. But, um, 
you know, maybe that's, I don't know if that's changing generally, but people can reach a boiling point with that where you want to tell the truth and explain what really goes on. And, you know, there was a lot of uh, myth-making and there's always been a lot of myth-making in baseball and sports in general, but, you know, I, I, I set out to, to not be a myth-maker. Yeah, well, it was very, there was very calculated myth-making with this Astros organization too, right? It was not, it was sort of not the same vibe as the sort of closed-door, uh, you know, old boys club that, that baseball had sort of been for decades at this point, right? It was almost like a, like a sort of incubator or like a think tank um, that, uh, you know, of course you're going to ruffle some feathers when you, when you come in that way. It's also interesting when the myth-making goes from like the players on the field to the front office or to the business side of baseball because, you know, I feel like that shift, which has happened in the last 15 years, which you chronicle in one organization in this book, has just, for lack of a better phrase, broken a lot of people's brains, you know, like yeah. that we are so, we, I mean, me and Alex, as much as anybody, are so obsessed with these larger trends in baseball and who is uh, starting them who is following them through and and why are they pursuing them to what end? You know, something I was thinking about while I was reading it, Evan, was that this idea of disruption, which clearly is like the driving force behind what happened in Houston. Jeff Luna wanted to come in specifically. He didn't care about being liked. He wanted to do things this way and see how it would play out. And Jim Crane empowered him to do that because he wanted to buy this team and completely turn it around, ultimately delivering them a World Series, obviously. I just, I find it interesting how this notion of disruption is always just we have to disrupt this so that we can save money, you know? And I wonder if like throughout the course of reporting this was, were people like self-aware about that notion that this disruption was really just like a financial game this whole time. And do you think that there is a possibility for this idea of disruption, which is a very Silicon Valley driven notion that has taken over kind of like our entire world at this point, that this idea of disruption can be applied to anything other than basically saving the owner money, like basically saving some executives some money in the end of it. Yeah, I, th I think the book kind of fits in to a degree with the larger awareness that people are having of what disruption means and what comes along with it generally, or at least that I, I hope and sense some people are, are having. Um, we, 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 in general, just the general we kind of fetishized um, disruption for a long time and you know I, i'm very very proud of breaking the science stealing stuff but the you know the story that in some ways is most important to my career might be you can argue is one i did nine years ago when i was saying um when i wrote a piece presenting all these questions industry stakeholders had about the astros way of doing business and you know, the Astros attempted to paint it as just, well, these are Luddites left behind, you know, disgruntled. And look, there's some element of, yeah, there were some people who didn't want to change and, and there were things that probably rightfully should have been changed. Uh, but there was still this underlying question of, of how they were handling people and, and treating people. And yeah, I, I am myself, you know, I, I look, I've done stories that are kind of like wow look at how innovative this team is being i mean you could even argue this one i did on ground control i was the first reporter to write about ground control the astros database right nobody had written about it 
I, I had covered the Red Sox. I knew they had had Carmine. So I said, oh, this is interesting. I, I, I bet the Astros have one too. And lo and behold, they did. And lo and behold, they were willing to talk about it. They loved positive attention around their, their innovation. I was smart enough to ask and include in the story, well, what about digital security and you know the, the IP <laughs> side of this? I'm very glad I, I didn't overlook that. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think, you know, there's just, there's, there was a trend for a long time. And I think I was ahead of this trend of, um, just slobbering over innovation and not considering what innovation, what comes along with it, the totality of it and who it benefits. As you point out, often it's, it's, you know, the book is in a way the, showing people the outgrowth of Moneyball. It, 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 this, this is what Moneyball has wrought. It has wrought some smart things and it has also created a lot of other things. And I, I, I don't think people were sitting there thinking about it in those terms for a long time. It was simply, wow, look how smart these guys are being. Well, gee, what else comes along with how smart they're being? One of the, one of the striking things about this book to me is like how many familiar faces there are like like people who sort of dot various front offices across the game now right and are considered maybe some of the the foremost minds in the sport um and i'm wondering you know it, to the extent that lunau and his ilk sort of represent this new wave of thinking about baseball how, how much would you say they're kind of winning that broader fight against the old sort of methods like a lot of these guys have gone on and uh you know i hold really high important positions across the sport of baseball so i mean is it fair to say that you know lunau has sort of changed the makeup of front offices not just with the astros but like more broadly speaking yeah i don't think that's unfair i i you know you you can get into a debate about how much of that next wave of Moneyball, or, or the third wave of Moneyball, wherever you want to, however you want to look at it, you know how much of it is Luno alone. It's not like the Astros were the only team. Friedman with the Dodgers, uh, you know, it, it, there, there are other examples of analytics-minded, forward-thinking teams. The Astros might have been truly the leader in player development and uh, uh, you know they 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 wanted to move quickly in general they they felt that the speed of adoption was going to create advantage for them and you know more than that or underlying all this they were loud right other teams were not as publicly trumpeting a just how smart they thought they were and um b their their adherence to you know all all this new thinking so yeah i i mean i think the book, it's, I think it's in the marketing copy of the book. That, that, you know, it, it, I think the book does make clear the the Astros way is is not going anywhere, and there is an inevitability to that when when people, when business owners are exposed to ways to save money, they'll, you know, that that, that one way or another that was going to eventually come into baseball um, and and go into any form of business, you know. The, the the scouting versus statistics debate it's it's in some ways very silly you know and you hear G- GMs today well while well, we use both and and I actually think the Astros were rather smart to kind of posit this question of well yeah anybody can use both it's how do you use it how do you actually put it together and then make decisions off of it right I mean you yeah you know 
scout says this, numbers says, say this, but then how do you meld them? And then how, what is actually the decision-making process? But, you know, there's this big fight in the Astros front office over the future of R&D and how do they keep innovating? And you have Luno and Sigma Dell on one side and uh, Mike Fast and Brandon Taubman and Pete Patil on, on another side. And in, in a way, it's the, the, that latter trio is, is advocating for scouting information. Like what is TrackMan and Andrew Tronic? It is scouting information, obviously captured in a much more robust way than I'm just looking at it with my eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, the concern Luno and Sig had and wasn't totally invalid was, was you know, we're, we're working on probabilities and odds here. If the, if the model doesn't know how to uh, incorporate or we don't know how to, you know, assign the odds to these new streams of information, how do we trust it? And so kind of what, what those three fast Taubman and Patilla are advocating for is like, look, we've got to use this scouting information. It is scouting information gleaned from high-speed cameras and, and advanced technology. But it, it is, at the end of the day, it's still scouting information uh, that they weren't sure how to incorporate quite yet. So, yeah, I, I'm in many ways tired of the, the scouting versus statistics debate, but there's still very legitimate discussions to be had um, within it. it, it it's not that it's in some ways tired, but but there are there are some real topics within it still. Um, Evan, I'm going to do something annoying, which is ask you a question that definitely doesn't have a clean answer, but I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, why sure. does baseball take itself so seriously? Like why why are why is everybody so paranoid, so intense? And in in the case of this book, as you lay out like so conflict oriented within the Astros front office, like what about? baseball whether it's like the business side the on the field side the competitive aspect of it the history of it throughout america lends itself to this type of thinking and this type of acting being normal a lot of what the astros you know front office was doing was was not normal to people who have been in the baseball world for a long time but the goal was normal like they wanted to win at all costs and every all 30 organizations would probably tell you that that's what they want anyway and then like the rest of our lives the way that these people are behaving is 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 weird. Like it's it's not yeah. how you would act at your job. So what about baseball makes it so self serious and conflict oriented? Yeah, and, and you know some of the conflict in the in the Astros front office, I do think was inherent specifically to the Astros. Right? There was a management, a specific management style or or lack thereof that was that unfolded. You know, Luno liked having Taubman drop in in the way a management consultant would into different departments, departments that weren't his. Well, that's naturally going to create conflict. When you bring in McKinsey and company to evaluate baseball operations in the middle of 2017, that's going to create conflict. So other front offices don't have, I think the Astros are an extreme example of that, at least just, just the general internal conflict they have. But I think your point overall still stands you know, the, the, to the self-seriousness part, I tweeted this the other day. I, I'd gone on a podcast with Derek Gould, who's a great beat writer for the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, and we had talked about the the efforts for all these teams to label everything as proprietary and how it can get... It is over the top at times, and, and I think unnecessary at times. I'm sure these front offices would all tell you, no, 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 it's very necessary. And then a day or two later, I was at Mets camp, and they asked all the reporters to leave the field for a proprietary drill. And, <laughs> you know, I, it, it's, I, I'm, I remember being in Houston 
this is a fun story. I think I told it on, on Gould's podcast. It was the only other place I've told it. It's not in the book. That um, I, I was talking to pitching coach Brent Strom. And it, it was spring training. And I was doing... So we were in Florida. And I was doing like a notebook for or something. It wasn't a major story. And I was writing about Asher Wojciechowski. And so I, you know, you, you talk to the pitching coach about, hey, what are you working on with this guy? What do you see with this guy? And... Strom mentioned that they were trying to have him pitch to the middle of the plate, that everybody thinks, well, it should be the, the, the inside corner, outside corner, but actually there there's reason to pitch to the middle of the plate, which was interesting. And I, I put it in the story and I, I don't think it got a headline, you know, it was just, it was in the story. And like, I think literally the next day, uh, the Astros decided your media is not speaking to our coaches anymore. Uh, uh, unless, you know, it's cleared ahead of time with Hinger Luno. And I think this was a joint Hinch-Luno decision. Um, It it reaches a point of absurdity because this this is an entertainment business where, um, you know, fans do want to understand how and why things work. It it is literally part of the marketing of the sport and creating fans, I think, to explain what is happening and why. And as we've entered this realm of everybody being so self-serious, you know, it's diminished. And I, and I think the book is really, I'm very proud of the fact that I think it does get under the hood of what actually goes on in the front office in a way that, um, I don't know, isn't, you know, it doesn't really happen. I, I don't think there are many parallel examples to, 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 you know, what the book shows. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, you know, this question of why is it in baseball, like, like as, as more of this kind of business ethos, you know, what, what's the, uh, What's the goal for corporations to deliver value to the shareholders? Right? That's at least what most of them believe. And well, then what's the goal of the team? It's to win. And so, you know, you, 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 they, they get wrapped up in it. Um, it becomes very myopic, you know, without kind of seeing the, the, the other effects. Um, but yeah, I, I'm very like, Big eye roll for me at, at a lot of the, oh, we can't talk. I mean, one more example, like at the GM meetings this year, there was a general manager. I was asking about the rule changes and you know, how is this changing, how you're evaluating players. Some GMs answered it, and I remember one didn't. And I'm just thinking in my head to this one, it's like, dude, like, <laughs> like you're not sitting on a gold mine here. Like, it, it's, it, you know, it's part of the conversation. It's just, you, you can understand from their perspective where they're coming from, but I think, it, can also understand the observer and uh, media and fan perspective of of come on, like like let, let's get let's get over ourselves a little bit here. I found myself thinking so often while I was reading this, I was like, why are we treating this like the CIA versus the KGB? Like we're playing fucking baseball here, guys. Like and the actions of these people who, I mean, are adult human beings who like otherwise understand how society works and understand that baseball is ultimately inconsequential to the you know future of human existence as to whether the Astros win 84 or 88 games this year. So I, I don't know. I just, I figured it was worth asking because the entire time I was reading it, it kind of, I mean, it felt like sort of like absurdist comedy, like a satirical comedy with the way that these people acted. Obviously you are not like, you're just telling the events how they happened, but from the outside perspective with years, years removed later, it's just, it's like almost satirical, the level to which these people take themselves so seriously. Yeah. Yeah. And well, and the, just the, the amount of stuff they were throwing at the wall at the same time, right? Like a lot of the time they really did not, not that they didn't know what they were doing, but they didn't, 
there was no foundation upon which a lot of this. One thing that really struck me was when they talked about getting an x-ray machine and taking it down to the Dominican Republic so that they could take a look at players' hands <laughs> and figure I mean, out. You know, you're the first they- person to bring that up. And I'm surprised that was one of the anecdotes that I thought was pretty wild too. I'm surprised <laughs> that that one didn't, uh, you know, you could, you try to sit and imagine well, what are people going to write about or, uh, you know, put into a news story. I thought that one was pretty wild. Yeah, yeah, they're like let's let's pull out the calipers, you know? Let's see yeah. <laughs> what we can do with these kids. But like but like that was very representative, right, of just how they operated, which was with a just sort of cavalier kind of yeah, who cares if this is morally savory or if this is legal. It's kind of like what we're doing here is running this insular baseball operation that wants to win games. And and again, like if we win, it might fix everything. As, That's right. As one might say. It, it, it might. Yeah. I, um, the, the, the levels that they would go to, I, I think kind of to the earlier point in the discussion, um, you're right. People did, when you read the book, you, you see how they really were kind of just figuring things out as they went along. And, you know, ground control was this really minimal, minimally viable product that, didn't have great security and, and you, you, people have this uh, instinct to kind of sit there and look up at people and go, wow, they're so smart. And you know, at the end of the day, not to be too kind of, I don't know, cliche about it, but like people are people, you know, like this notion that they had it all figured out and they're so much smarter than everybody. Come on. You know, it's, it's how many of those stories prove true. It's, it's really. um, And how many of those stories, like how, how, how much could you really say that if the Astros just had not ended up winning Game 7 of the 2017 World Series? You know, like, these things are so fragile in how we construct these, like, this myth-making that we were talking about at the beginning of this conversation. It is obviously a different myth if they do not win in the year that they said that they were going to win by. It just is, it's happenstance in a lot of cases. Um, well, this, is, know- this is an important point, because I think about this quite frequently, and it was one of the, you know, there was the period of 13 months before the story of the science student comes out and in, in, in 2019 and a little bit of, you know, I was shell shocked at the time I'd been fired and you're sitting there going, who's going to believe it? Who's going to believe that this really, you know, well-renowned franchise uh, that keeps winning games is so screwed up behind the scenes. And I think about, well, if the science stealing doesn't happen, if, if, or if you just put that all aside, all this other stuff was going on. And yet the thing that makes people pay attention is, oh, the cheating. Yeah. Um, and yet, even if you even if you never get to the point of the cheating, the culture was still really screwed up. And and I think that's this, the, the conflict between the result on the field and the means to the end, I, I think should be unsettling for people. It, that, you know, this notion that really all you do want is the title and um you know, how does how you get there matter? And I think, and the Astros ended up being this extreme example of, well, yes, because they cheated. But even if they didn't cheat, there, there's still a lot to unpack there. And there's a lot of unsavory stuff beyond just the cheating. Obviously, what is driving, at least as they tell it, their decision making is this ruthless pursuit of efficiency, which is very common in the sort of McKinsey style of thinking is that 
the reason that McKinsey exists is to make everybody else more efficient. Never mind the fact that it's incredibly inefficient how these consulting companies usually are deployed throughout society and that they are very expensive and they're an inefficient use of funds for a lot of companies that, you know, either don't want to pay taxes or don't want to pay their employees more or anything like that. So I'm wondering, like, when you look at the rest of the league and this idea that efficiency, as, as Alex pointed out at the beginning of our conversation, efficiency has kind of spread itself to all 30 teams in certain ways, in Astrosian ways. Is there a team that, a team or a handful of teams that reminds you of, of being at the spot that the 2013 and 14 Astros were at right now? Well, I mean, if, if you're not leading me to the Baltimore Orioles, I don't know where you're <laughs> Well, it's interesting. The yeah. Orioles are an interesting question because it's a lot of the same brain trust, but obviously they can't act as brazenly as that the Astros were doing at the time because we now know how brazenly the Astros were acting, right? Yeah, I, I you know, at this point, I, I think tanking is a grift. Um, I think it's, it's really a genius bit of marketing that, um, and I might have said this when I was on with you guys last time. It, 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 it you know, convincing people that it is good for them to not spend on their product. That that's actually good for the fan and the consumer is really it's 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 remarkable. I mean, you know, where's the parallel? I'm sure we could think of something. I maybe in in the outside world, but it's it's really pretty unique. You know that that hey, we're going to be bad, and that's actually good. Keep buying our product. Keep following our product. Um, <laughs> yeah the 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 cost saving element of what the Astros did is certainly being replicated in Baltimore. You know even. Even when people talk about sustainability with the farm system, what does that mean? It means cheap players. That's all it is, right? Building from within means we're not spending market prices, or at least we're not spending market prices on a, you know, core large amount of of players. And that that is part of baseball system. It's not as though like I'm saying teams shouldn't build from within, but it's just it's all oriented around money. And and you know, I I've said it. Really, when I was more talking about like labor stuff in, in, in baseball, but ninety-five percent of what I write at my day job, the answer comes back to it's about money. I mean, I, I just wrote a column now that maybe will be up by the time this is out, uh, kind of parsing MLB's you know economic reform committee and you know is the league really Love pushing for us out? Look, we got to we just have to have a committee, Evan. Let's get a right. committee on it. Let's have a committee on a committee, and <laughs> uh, you know the the. The takeaway, really, at the end of the day, is at the bottom line of every story is it, it, it's about money. And I actually think that it is unlikely because it would take such a massive work stoppage and such a large amount of money that would, the owners would have to forego, as well as the players, uh, to get a cap. Right, assuming it would take a year or more, and knowing that it, even if you had a year of work stoppage that you might not still get the cap. It's a huge risk. It's a huge gamble financially. And I, 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 it, doesn't, it doesn't fit in with the practical way that Rob Manfred often approaches things to me, that, he, that they would actually go forward with this uh, for the cost that would come along with it. So yeah, just a, just a non sequitur too. It's, it's all about money. What, you know, Orioles or, or whoever, um, that's all it's about. Money fixes everything, baby. That's the, the that's the real story, right? It's like, I called I mean, you're it Moneyball, right? I <laughs> right, mean, it's, exactly. It's they like did. We kind, of, we kind of ignored that part of it. Yeah, it's it's people don't really. Yeah, I, I think that word gets overlooked in a weird way. They didn't call it OBP ball. No. Um, last really quick question for you, I wanted to ask um, about the writing style of the book. The 
specifically the dialogue, because so much of this book is conversations with people or recounting conversations that happened um, with either, you know, uh, anonymous former executives or Astro staffers. Something I noticed about your writing is that it's like, it's really directly conversational. You know, you choose to leave in the likes, the pauses, the ums, the ellipses, and that's true of your writing in The Athletic. And I wonder if that was like a conscious decision with this book and with whoever, you know, you worked with the editor or whoever, just because of how either sensitive the subject matter was or because of how, you know, unique and nuanced some of the like moral gray areas of it was, or is that just how you style your writing? Yeah, it's an interesting question. You want the, you want the quotes to be readable. You know, there's an interesting discussion to be had generally about if you remove even the most basic verbal tick, yeah. should you be putting, should you indicate removal of that quote by using a bracket or, or an ellipsis and a dot, 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 um, you know, and different people, different editors would give you d- different perspectives on this. Um, you know, you want the meaning of the quote to be conveyed. If somebody misspeaks or starts a sentence in another way, you know, do, do you include that M dash portion of it? I think largely I did. I, and for the reason that, um, you know, this is tricky, controversial material. And I, I think you don't want people to be able to say, well, you misquoted me. Right. And yeah, so, yeah. so I think, I think for that reason, um, you, you know, you're, 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 you're better off with, with just the exact words or, or as exact as you can. Um, the reason I ask is because oftentimes it plays out in a way that you're just letting the person kind of dig their own hole with their word soup. Word soup is a phrase that you use to describe one of Manfred's statements about the Yankees sign stealing and that then the Red Sox sign stealing. And so I was wondering if it was sort of like a conscious decision or kind of like an editorial process decision because you know, even in like quotes that you've had from Manfred in the past, like as he trails off, that's part of the delivery of the quote is that they have nothing else to say here and they can't really justify what they're doing even to themselves out loud as they're saying it. And so uh, uh, many times in this book, I found myself thinking, wow, this person like really isn't even making any sense. And yet the quote being here provides you the opportunity to understand that this person is not making any sense, even in their own twisted logic. Yeah, I I th- there's kind of two ways you can do it. And I think the book does both and, and it's, you know, it's really up to the, I guess the writer reporter to do it, how they see fit. You can be very explicit about how to interpret something, or you can lead the horse to water to an, or, or kind of leave it open. Um, uh, and, and I think I did both And there are, there are definitely, you know, like if I wanted to have been, I could have been very explicit at the end of the Cardinals chapter or later in the book, everything that happened in St. Louis is a parallel to what's going to happen in Houston. Right? I didn't, I didn't use those exact words. Um, but my hope would even be like, if somebody ever reread it, they, knowing what happens in Houston, you go through the Cardinal stuff and realize like, Oh, like this is, you know, there's, there's stuff early in the book where um, Robert Holloway, who's, who was Luno's colleague at, you know, this tech business before Luno gets to baseball talking about uh you know the one area i thought luno needed to improve was his external relations and i had no doubt that he would uh you know just a matter of time right and i you know and, and I, there's a narrative choice there i can say well you know <laughs> we'll find out uh or just kind of let that linger and and so you know you try to make those decisions as best you can and you, and you hope people see the parallels where you see the parallels and sometimes you're explicit. I think I explicitly said, 
you know, Rob Manfred bringing in McKinsey at MLB was acting as an agent of change in a similar way to, to Luno. You know, I, I, I think I explicitly said that. Um, and if I didn't, I, I hoped people would realize that too, right? That you had this kind of parallel track between the commissioner's office and, um, and Luno himself, that there are actually these similarities between the two. So yeah, you, you, you want to, you want to let, lead people to some things and let them make some decisions for themselves and see what they catch. And you also want to be really explicit about some things. And, uh, you know, you can have a debate about what, what, which ones you should do either track for. It certainly helps when the people you're talking to are happy to, uh, to self-incriminate <laughs> um, <laughs> or at least talk very candidly about the, the somewhat unsavory uh, tactics they were using. Um, you kind of you don't need to to lay it all out when they're going to do it for you. Um, and yeah, when like that, there was an executive who compares the Astros to Amazon at the end, you know. I, and I think I have some something afterward, and I said I called it a loaded comparison, trying to suggest to people, well, think about what that you know, what does Amazon entail? Right. Um, I could have not done that, and then you run the risk that people read that and go, "Great." Well, so that's a good. That's inherently good, or is it not? Right. So you know, it, yeah. you. You, you rely on interpretation of, of readers, but you, you also try to assist in some spots, you know? I think that's part of what makes the book such an easy read, as, as many people have described it, is that it allows the reader the points to pick and choose where they're filling in their brains, like what they, how they approach a certain aspect of the story. Um, Evan Drellick, thank you. Thank you for being generous with your time. We very much enjoyed this book. Best of luck with your thousand more interviews with it, sir. <laughs> Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. Okay, thank you to Evan. Thank you again to Owen for assembling the Tipping Pitches Fans Union Survey. This kicks off the month of March, um, where we will be preparing for the 2023 season. As I mentioned on the show last week, next week we have a fun one-off style episode, which we you know, are hoping will be fun for you guys to listen to. Uh, Quasi-Oscars related, which is all I will say about it. And hopefully this can be another kind of yearly thing that we do to preview the baseball season. Following that, we'll have the Tipping Pitches Band Topics. The last week of March, we will have the Tipping Pitches All Gift Draft, as per usual. And then the baseball season is starting. Uh, if you'd like to call into the Tipping Pitches podcast, number is 785-422-5881. You can email us at tippingpitchespod at gmail.com. DM us tipping underscore pitches on Twitter. The Patreon is patreon.com slash tipping pitches. This, this laundry list is getting longer and longer of things that I have to say at the end of every podcast. Thank you to everybody for listening. Thank you, Alex, for sticking, sticking strong on the other side of this marathon episode. Anything else to, to let people know about? I'm just going to say that there's one final question on the, on the fan union survey, and that was your favorite Slack emoji. Oh, yes. The, I left this the, off. The The answer was eel. And I'm just going to say, if you know, you know. If you know, you know. <laughs> Join the Slack. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll see you next week. Hello, everybody. Uh, I'm Alex Rodriguez. Tipping pitches. Tipping pitches. This is the one that I love the most. Tipping pitches. So we'll see you next week. See ya!